Um, I wanted to particularly pray for uh, those that were affected by the terrorist attack in France. Uh, a lot of people lost their lives and um, many families were affected there. I want to pray for them, then we'll pray for the word. Lord, we thank you um, for the many blessings you bestow upon us every day. We thank you for being here with us today. We thank you for allowing us to worship you, allowing us to hear your word proclaimed. We want to lift up, uh, Lord, those that are uh, affected by the uh, Paris attack. Lord, um, I pray for the families of those affected. I pray that um, instead of turning away from you in anger, they might turn toward you in faith. I pray that you would pour your spirit out on them and use... um, this heartache to draw them to you. Um, Lord, we don't always understand your providence, but we know that you are good and you work good out of evil. So we pray that you would do that in this situation. I pray that you would remind each one of us of the brevity and uncertainty of life that we never know, Lord, um, when you might call us home. Help us to truly redeem the time in light of that. We ask your blessing also on your word today, that you would give us ears to hear. Pray that for ourselves. I pray for your blessing on the children and and uh, those that are leaving the rehearsal. I grant them your grace, Lord. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, as the kids go out, you can turn to uh, Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, we have the account of uh, the Lord versus the legion. And we've looked at this passage a couple times. Today I wanted to kind of summarize some things and make some practical observations for us before we move forward in the book of Mark. Mark 5.1 Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Your version may say Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirit Spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demonized and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, 
he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Um, we, we've already talked about, from this text, that we learn about the reality of the spiritual realm, that it really does exist, that it's really inhabited by spiritual beings, God, angels, both good and bad, the bad angels being called demons or unclean spirits. There is a, a being called Satan, he is a real being, meaning he and the other angels have personality. They have intellect. They have emotion. They have will. They're not um, impersonal forces. They're not uh, literary figures, uh, literary types in the Bible. But they are real. Um, this spiritual realm is not separate from what we call the natural realm. The two realms are really a part of one created order, and there's an intersection of the two realms, if you will. Um, and so when we talk about God and Jesus and Satan and angels and demons, they're not far off, they're present. They operate in this world that we live in. Here, in this case, we see an extreme example of a man who was demonized. Literally, his personality was taken over by um, a host of demons. Um, so, the, the spiritual realm is real. And uh, it, when it comes to, the, to Satan and demons, the spiritual realm is dark. Okay? Um, now... Let's make some practical observations. One is this, and I've made it already, but it needs to be reiterated. Because of the reality of the dark side, if you will, uh, we need to be vigilant as Christians. Now, one thing we learn from this text is that Jesus is the Lord of all. Amen? Jesus is Lord over the demons. Jesus is Lord over Satan. However... His lordship over the dark side does not mean that, therefore, we need to be um, apathetic or, or unconcerned about the forces of evil. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Uh, Satan is a defeated foe, but he's still a foe. Now, it's, it's, it's an interesting point to discuss while you're sitting around the fireplace this winter. Does Satan really know he's defeated or not? Does he? Does he know? He, I mean, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's so irrational, he doesn't know and he thinks he can still win. But maybe he does know. And maybe he's like the suicide bombers in Paris. They knew they were going to die. So what was the goal? Take as many people with me as I can. So maybe Satan does know. And because he knows he's defeated, he's filled with rage. And so because he's filled with rage, he hates everything that God loves everything that is good, and he especially hates the bride of Christ. And so he wants to destroy the bride. He wants the, the bride to, to go down with him, if you will, in his destruction and his condemnation. Um, therefore, even though he is defeated and we are, we are reassured in the word of God, that uh, there will be an ultimate triumph for the saints over all sin, all evil. In this present age, there is a spiritual battle going on, and it's very real. Therefore, we must be vigilant, 
and we must put on the armor of God. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, and Peter tells us in um, 1 Peter 5. If, if the battle wasn't real, there would be no reason for those exhortations in Scripture. So we need to be aware, because the enemy is attempting to take us down with him. He's attempting to deceive us. He's attempting to lure us into to sin. And he's attempting for us to not do the will of God, not to advance the kingdom of God, not to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ on the earth. And so we need to be aware of his tactics. Even though he's defeated, the Lord still permits him to operate. Uh, and you might ask the question, why? And only the Lord knows. But God uh, works good out of evil, and he permits his operation. And part of it is, I think, for our training in righteousness. So we, we must be vigilant. We must engage in the spiritual battle. We must resist the devil, and as the Word of God says, he will flee. doesn't mean he won't come back. But we resist him again, and then he will flee. So we must learn to be vigilant in the, in the, in the uh, uh, spiritual warfare that's all around us. A second, a second thing that struck me about this passage as I, as I studied it was the response of uh, the, the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, whatever you want to call them, the people in this country. When they came out and saw the man who, who was delivered in his right mind, they were afraid. And it's interesting, they were so afraid that they asked Jesus to leave. They didn't want Jesus around. Now, you would think that having seen this man, uh, an extreme case of demon possession, you know, extreme, he's, he's howling, he's crying out at night, he's cutting himself, uh, really creepy, you know what I mean? Really creepy. You would think that when they saw him sane and whole, they would have been like, glory to God. Who did this? Jesus did this. Well, do you not think there were other people? in the area who may have had demon problems or other people who were sick and needed healing, you would think that they would have begun to just bring multitudes to Jesus for, for deliverance and healing, but they didn't. They said, leave, get out of here. You are freaking us out. It's really odd, isn't it? But in another sense, maybe it's not so odd, because what happened here was a, was a profound manifestation of the power of God. Okay, because this case was an extreme case. A man possessed by a legion, a multitude of demons. So Jesus uh, demonstrates supernatural power, his supernatural power of deliverance, and the people were spooked by it. And, and I think that the, the thing that struck me is, is how, how we often can be spooked by the supernatural. You say, you see, we believe in the supernatural, but because we tend to, we tend to push it out there. You know, we tend to be more like deists than Christians. Yeah, that's real, but it's all kind of out there. But it's not out there. It's right here. And, and the thing about the Lord is the Lord can do miraculous things in your life. But then again, miraculous things can be pretty spooky. They can be scary. It's easier to believe in a God that you're controlling than a, than a God that's controlling you. And, and this isn't the only case where we see the Lord do a miracle where, where people get really afraid. Like when he did the miracle 
uh, when when the disciples were out fishing and they they brought in this haul of fish, and Peter was like, "Oh my gosh, he, Lord, depart from me! I'm a sinful man." He was freaked out by the manifestation of Christ's power, and so. <clears throat> We need to understand that the supernatural is real, the supernatural is present, and we need to not be afraid of it. And the reason is, one of the reasons is, is because if we're afraid of the supernatural, we may unwittingly be saying to Jesus, depart from me. Depart from me, Jesus. Well, how can, how can a Christian say depart from me if we love Jesus? Well, because we're afraid of Jesus. The real Jesus. We're afraid of the power of Jesus. But let me say this about Jesus. Jesus never uses his power in a destructive way toward his people. Now, he might destroy sin in your life, but that's that's a different thing. The power of Jesus is always used for good. It's used to minister, to encourage, to deliver, to heal, to do great things for his people and to advance his kingdom in the world. That's what he uses his power for. And if we really believe that he is good, then we'll understand that his power is good. And we'll not be afraid of his power. So we don't want to be like the Gadarenes, amen? We don't want to unwittingly... No one, no Christian would say, Jesus, get away from me. But I think many Christians are uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus' power being manifested in their life in a real way. The miraculous scares them. And it's based on what that reveals, though, is a a fundamental mistrust about the character of who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is good, he will never use his power to hurt us. Amen? Amen? Third observation, the man who was healed, it says here, um, so, you know, the Gadarenes want Jesus to leave. They don't want Jesus around. The man who was delivered, he's just the opposite. He wants to be with Jesus, right? So Jesus says, okay, you, you guys want me to leave? Fine, I'll leave. But the, the delivered man is like, don't leave. I want to be with you, Jesus. So, um, it says in verse 18, and when he got into the boat, he being Jesus, he would have been demon-possessed, begged him that he might be with him. But notice this. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. So then the man departed and he told what Jesus had done in Decapolis and all the region. And many people marveled. You, you would think if there was one request Jesus would grant, it would be this, right? Jesus, I want to be with you. And Jesus said, don't. You can't go with me. There's something else you need to do. And the lesson here is this, is that, you listening? Yes. Is that Jesus is the one who is to determine our sphere of ministry. Jesus is the one. This man wanted to be with Jesus I, I believe that this is a, a natural, godly response to his, his deliverance. But Jesus had something else for him to do. Jesus wanted him to do something else. And when it comes to our service to the Lord, the thing that ought to determine our service for the Lord is not what we want, but what Jesus wants. Now, <clears throat> 
I think what happens in the Christian life is this. You're presented with an opportunity to serve, and you think, "Eh, I don't want to do that. And so you don't do that. That's very natural, I understand. But the thing we have to understand as Christians is that's that's not the right response. The right response is, I don't want to do that, but maybe God wants me to do that. I better pray about this. See, that's the right response. And I believe God is calling some of you to do things, and you're not hearing us call because you don't want to do it. And unwittingly, assuming that your desire is the standard by which to determine God's will. But it's not. What I want is irrelevant. What Jesus wants, that's what's relevant. Okay? So, if Jesus wants me to do something, I should do it, whether I want to do it or not. Now, we are so immersed in subjectivism in our society that we assume that if we don't want to do it, it must not be God's will. That's why we don't even go to the next step to pray about it. Oh, I don't want to do it, so it's not God's will. This man, what's better than wanting to be with Jesus? What is better than that? Nothing could have been better than that. But it wasn't Jesus' will for him. And so, you know, we have got to get beyond this thing of saying, well, because I don't want to do it, I shouldn't pray about it and ask God if I want to do it. Much of my ministry has been doing things I don't want to do. Well, it's true. I mean, how many of you mothers like to get up at 3 in the morning when a, when a baby's vomiting all over? No, I'm serious. Well, you don't want to, but you do it, right? Because it's the will of God for you to care for your child. And you might not think about it theologically because you're just it's a natural instinct for you to care for your children. But the truth is, it's the will of God for you to care for your children. So you're doing the will of God, even though it's difficult and even though it's uncomfortable and it's not what you want. Now, I've been told that we've been passing around a sign-up sheet for, for catechism teachers, and I've been told that no one's signing up. Well, that tells me two things. It tells me, number one, that nobody wants to do it. That's obvious. Right? But it also tells me something else. It tells me you're not praying about it. Because I believe that God wants us to minister minister to our children in that way. Amen. That means there are people here that He is asking to do it, but they're not listening. They won't even go to the step and say, Oh, Lord, do you want me to do this? Because if you will ask the Lord sincerely and candidly His will in the matter, I believe that He will speak to enough people in this community that that ministry will be taken care of. I'm convinced. So, I understand you're not wanting to do it. That's natural. There's a lot of things I don't want to do, but I do. But I'm more concerned that we don't, we're not listening to God in this thing. Okay? So, I'm asking each one of you to pray about this, candidly before God. Okay? And if, if God speaks to no one, then we will no longer have a children's ministry in this church. Because that means God doesn't want it. Okay? Does that sound fair? So if God doesn't speak to anybody, then God doesn't want us to do it. That's no sweat off me. My kids are older. But I don't think that's what the Lord's going to say. 
I think the Lord is speaking, but I don't think we're listening. Because we don't, some of us don't want to do what God is telling us to do. Our sphere of service, whether it's something as simple as catechizing children, whether it's uh, evangelizing, whether it's giving, whether it's giving to the special project where we want to do outreach, uh, all of these things must be under the will of Jesus Christ. Listen, if we're serving the Lord only when we like it, only when it's convenient, only when it's comfortable, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I really serving the Lord or am I serving myself? Because, you know, a servant, by definition, is someone who takes order from his superior. A good friend of mine who's a well-known national figure, we were talking one day and he said, you know, we all want to be servants, but we don't want to be treated like one. And it's true. Jesus exalts servanthood, and I think, oh, that's awesome, I want to be a servant. The problem is, I want I want to be a servant, but I want to maintain my self-will. And you can't. Because a servant doesn't do his will. A servant does the will of his master. So, Lord, what's your will? Not what do I like, what's your will? And I can assure you that sometimes his will for you will be doing the thing that you don't like. Why? Because you need it for your growth and sanctification and maturity. If your walk with Jesus was always easy, then you would not grow. It just wouldn't happen. Now, I'm not saying God's will is all, you know, I'm not saying following the Lord is the thing where you're always miserable. No. But it's not always, hey, it's camp time. Okay, it's both. There are times of great exaltation and joy and all of that jazz, but there's times where, you know what, you do the will of God because it's the will of God. And it it, it takes fortitude, it takes perseverance, and ultimately what it produces is maturity. Maturity. We, the American culture is soft. Okay, We are soft. We're soft physically, we're soft intellectually, we're soft morally. And this is the air we breathe, and the church has become soft. Okay, Most of us look at church as a place to get something, not a place to give something. In the scripture, it's both. You come to receive, you come to give. You come to grow, but part of your growth is in the giving. Whether it's giving financially, giving your time, giving your prayers. That is all part of the sanctification. If you really want to grow up in Christ... If you want to be a real mature Christian, immerse yourself in ministry because it will demand that you grow up. It will demand it. You cannot stay a babe and really serve. Jesus Christ is Lord of the entire world. The the spirit world, the natural world. He's Lord of the church. His will is what determines our calling. Let Him direct you in in this matter. And if he tells you to do something you don't want to do, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Because ultimately, it will be for your good. It will be for the good of his kingdom. Okay, And that's what should take priority in our lives. Not what we want, but what does he want? What's going to give Jesus honor and glory? Amen? Two more quick points. I know we're almost out of time. When the Lord directed this man saying, sorry, you can't go with me. He sent him back. 
But notice what he, said, what he says in verse 19. Jesus did not permit him, but said, Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Two things quickly. Go home. Be a witness for me first in your home. First in your home. J.C. Ryle, I've been quoting him a lot because he's just like so, wow. But he says this about this text. He says, Home is the place above all others where the child of God ought to make his first endeavors to do good. Home is the place where he most he is most continually seen and where the reality of his grace ought most truly to appear. Home is the place where his best affections ought to be concentrated. Home is the place where he should strive daily to be a witness for Christ. Home is the place where he was daily doing harm by his example, so long as he served the world. Home is the place where he is especially bound to be a living epistle of Christ, so soon as he has been mercifully taught to serve God. May we all remember these things daily. Amen? May it never be said of us that he that we are saints abroad, but wicked by our own fireside. Talkers about religion abroad, but worldly and ungodly at home. Convicting, amen? Some of us think as home is the place where we, 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 uh, we can relax. And what relax means is we can let go and indulge our sinful tendencies. Home is the place where you let your hair down and you be yourself. The problem is the self that's coming out is not godly. Right? But in Scripture, those nearest us have the greatest claim on us. So we are to be most godly with our wife and with our children, if we're married. With our, with our, for those of you who aren't married yet, with your siblings, with your relatives. So we have these concentric circles of people we know. The people you are closest to ought to be the ones that you are most godly before. But it usually doesn't work that way. So we want to go be with Jesus. And some of us want to play church. And some of us want to do all kinds of great things, but we're not godly at home. Jesus said, go home. Be godly at home first. Love your husband. Love your wife. Love your children. Love your siblings. Minister there first. Tell them the great things I've done for you. And then spread it abroad. Amen? Lastly, Jesus said, go home and then tell your friends the great things the Lord has done for you. Um, I could give a whole sermon on that, uh, that little sentence really, on, on the need for us to be evangelizing the lost. You know, uh, we can make evangelism really complicated. It's not complicated. It's actually fairly simple. Are you saved? Say yes. That's it? Uh-oh. We're really in trouble. Are you saved? Yes. Okay. Has God done great things for you? Yes. Then just tell people. It's not that hard. You work with people that don't know Jesus. You have siblings. Uh, other people around you that don't know Jesus. Just tell them what God has done for you. That's all you have to do. It's not hard. We don't need a, you know... A huge program to do this. We just need each of us to honestly speak to others about the great things God has done for us. That's evangelism. And that will draw people to Jesus. Amen? 
Let's stand and pray. Lord, I thank you for your great compassion that you showed to this man, that you showed to each one of us that know you. I do pray, Lord, that uh, as your people we would be vigilant. I pray that we would be submissive to serve as you have called us. I pray that we would um, walk the walk in our homes as well as when we're not at home. I pray, Lord, that we would very simply appreciate the great things you've done for us and to share those with others, family members, co-workers, others we, we encounter. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that boldly and lovingly tell others what a great Savior you are. I ask, Lord, today as we fellowship together, that we would even tell one another the great things you've done, that we'd encourage one another with your work in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you are good and you do good. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, downstairs, fellowship food.